What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Rod Asa, EVP, Unscripted Content, NBC Universal. Was so much fun to catch up with Rod. Had a blast going through the whole resume. We got him to talk about the recent restructuring in the alternative department at NBC Universal across Peacock, NBC, and the entire cable portfolio. So we got some clarity for all of you out in the marketplace to kind of want to know what the new structure is. But he had such amazing stories. We talked about his time working for Oprah at OWN. We talked about his time working for Ashton Kutcher and Jason Goldberg at Catalyst. And this is why I love doing this podcast. I've known Rod for years. I felt like I had a pretty good sense of his career. I really didn't know how singularly instrumental Rod was in shaping the genre of the celebrity docuseries. And that came at his time uh, at MTV. I had no idea how personally instrumental he was for shaping the Osbournes or in personally shaping newlyweds. I mean, if you look back, those those are seminal shows in our business that kind of spawned the birth of celebrity docuseries as we know them. And Rod was right there, you know, at the precipice of that. So it was great to have him walk me through, you know, what the MTV culture was and what he learned from it. But here's another thing I learned from the podcast. I learned, I learned kind of a parenting lesson. Yes, a parenting lesson. Go with me here. You know, Rod Asa now has one of the most, you know, highest level, most powerful jobs in the reality TV business. Fact. What I learned, going back to the parenting lesson, young Rod Asa was not like some motivated kid who was like really driven and knew exactly what he wanted to do. You're going to find out very early in this podcast, Rod was pretty apathetic and didn't really know what he wanted to do and really didn't like, the light bulb didn't really go off until like his mid-20s. You know, his mom was like pushing him, pushing him to like, go get a job, go get a job, take a job in TV, do this. And here he is. So all you parents out there, you have a child that maybe isn't showing interest in stuff, right? Maybe they're going to be a late bloomer. Maybe they too can one day run unscripted for a major conglomerate uh, entertainment company. You never know. This is my sit down with Rod Asa. I hope you enjoy it. So you did something as a network executive on one of my shows that I got the pleasure of working with you on this past summer. You did something that no other network executive has ever done. And I've told this story to many friends since, but I haven't said it on the show. And I hope it doesn't. It's going in a good place. (laughs) It is. It is. And I hope it doesn't embarrass you, but I think it's a good place to start. Let's do it. We're making this show celebrity call center this summer, like at the height of like the stay at home. And we're weeks into the show. You call me one day and, you know, normally when I get the call on my cell from the high ranking network executive, I'm like, Oh no, like what's, what's going on. Something, something's happening. And you call me and I'm like, Hey, what's going on, Rod? And you're like, Hey, no, no, nothing. You know, I just want to check in. Just want to check in. And you said, and this is what stuck with me. Cause again, I've never had this conversation. I've never had a network executive reach out like this. You were like, I just wanted to make sure you're happy, Jimmy. I just wanted to make sure that like you're making the show that you want to make and that your experience working with us here at E is a good experience. And I just just want to make sure that you're happy with where we're headed. 
Rod, something as simple as that is just asking your producer if they're happy with what's happening. I, I had never received that kind of call before. Is that typical for you? I like to do it a lot because, you know, look, I, I didn't grow up in a traditional network, whether it's cable or broadcast situation. Like I, I cut my teeth at MTV, right? So like, I don't know. That's just how, that's how we were trained, right? If you're working with a big music artist or a big producer, you just wanted to make sure that it was all going well and that the producer was getting the vision that they wanted. And um, so that, a, you would come back to us, but more importantly, you know, I don't get to play producer anymore. You know, I, you know, I get to play, you know, 10 Zoom calls a day kind of guy. <laughs> so if, if I, I don't know, I, th I just think it's, it's, it's super important. I think that's just how I was trained at, at MTV. It was the, it was the, the check-in, you know, and sometimes those calls don't go well. Sometimes people say, no, you're taking us completely out of, you know, out of the way. And then you just, let's stop and problem solve now before this gets out of hand, because what we buy is a vision. And especially with that show, there was an existing format for it. Right. And you had a real passion for it and it was competitive. So like, I got to make sure that you're happy with the show. Do you miss the action? You kind of referenced there that now you're like, and we'll get we'll get to the whole structure of what's going on over there because I know sure. that 90 percent 90 of, of the people that listen to this just want to know what the hell the structure is now at NBC <laughs> Universal in the unscripted I department. Think I, I think I, that's on all my ten Zoom calls a day. I believe that's what I that's what I yeah. We for. might you might need to bust out some flow charts, but do you Ooh. miss do you miss the action of not being in the 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 dirtiness of, of the day-to-day -day and the creative and, and the, and the daily problem solving that comes with being in the trenches. Um, yeah, I do. I, again, like, I, I don't think I ever got into this career hoping to be a network executive or a streaming executive. I always just love being around people making content and I just love the whole process of it. Like I miss a craft services table. <laughs> Like I really do like those case skillet quesadillas are just like, you know, are everything. So like, yeah, there's a lot of that, 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 that I miss, which is why it calls to high level producers like you to make sure that we're going in the right place. Um, I think are, are really important. That's the thing, right? That's crazy about any industry is the more you rise up the ladder, the more you actually get further away from what brought you there in the first place. And now you're at this level where it's so much about management, corporate managing up, corporate managing down. I, I, you're, you're giving me this look right now, like where, where, where are you going with this? No, I know exactly. I know exactly where you're going. And I have, and you know, like I'm just a guy that I was a talent guy, you know, and yeah. I like to cast and I like to work with talent. And, but what's interesting about this gig is I think it's fascinating to have a seat at the table when strategy is being decided, mm. right? So that I can answer the question, what's going on with the structure at, at NBCU with like a knowing and not a, I hear we're doing this, right? And I think that that's super cool because then I'm able to actually use the seat at a table in a way that's more meaningful for producers and talent and executives. Did you have any sort of nostalgic or childhood connection to, to NBC and the NBC brand at all? You know, interesting. I know because my, my mom and dad met while working at CBS. Oh, really? I, I was a CBS page in New York. Um, I, you know, like 
in New York. So there weren't great sets like talk shows. We had, uh, I had to give tours of like the Captain Kangaroo set and like the Nightly <laughs> News set. And people were like, this is it? I was like, yeah, this is what we do here, you know? Um, so I didn't, however, I remember the first time walking into 30 Rock when I had like a sweet ass office there. And I remember that my mom used to film, used to tape like sports talk shows there. Like she did a talk show with, um, with uh, Joe Namath and Willis Reed, who was a big, big basketball, Knicks basketball player in New York. And so the studios were in there. And I remember the first day walking in through that lobby and it was so crowded and I got in the elevator and I was like, oh, wow. Like, like yeah. this is the holy grail, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I got a sweet office at 30 Rock, you know? The heat was a little funky, but I still have a sweet office, you know? Oh no, I felt the same way, man. I felt the same way. Like when they first, when we first got, I mean, I had three of those moments because I had my first moment going to the Burbank lot when I was working at NBC. And then I had my first time going to the Universal lot when we moved offices. And then my first New York trip for Upfronts, being the assistant, going to 30 Rock for me was just like a, it's like walking in the Yankee Stadium for the first yeah, time if you're a sports fan, you know? By the way, and I was so proud, like my ID worked and, uh, you know, and I was just like, how did a kid like me get here? Because I didn't really have a big career vision when I got out of college, you know? Well, what kind of kid were you? I, I was a very curious kid. I was a latchkey kid, meaning that like my mom worked. Um, she was a single mom for a, a while. So I would just come home and I would watch like, game shows and Fat Albert reruns. The, you know, there were only like five channels or six channels. So I loved, I loved watching TV, but I never dreamt that I would actually like make TV or be in, around incredibly talented people that, that do it. I, I, when I got out of college, all I wanted to do was, you know, find Bono and, and beg him to let me be in the band somehow. And I had no music skill set at all or anything like that. I just wanted to be like David Bowie's best friend. I wanted to be in the back of Interview Magazine. That was like, you know, heartbreaking to my parents, but that's, that's what I thought. Like I, you know, Queens, it's New York, it's glamorous, it's this, but I, I didn't check off a box of like, I want to be a TV producer or anything. Like I just was like, I want to, it's almost like that almost famous movie. Like it would be so cool just to hang out with all these super cool people. Wait, what college did you go to? I went to Hofstra University. Okay. Okay. And, and, and were you a comm major from day one? No, not at all. Like I, again, I was one of those, like my parents said I should go to college and I said, okay. Um, and I thought that would take me off my road of like, you know, having this really fun rock and roll kind of lifestyle mm -hmm. somewhere with Bono and, you know, because <laughs> I loved you too, you know. Um, and so they made me be a business major and I, you know, took me an extra semester to get out because I had to be a business major. <laughs> right, so, you, so you get out of school, you, your, your ambitions have been nothing more than basically being like the best friend of rock stars. Yeah. And so where, what direction do you head when you get out of Hofstra? When I got out of Hofstra, my, um, my, my parents were like, so did you call CBS? Cause I was a page during yeah. like summers and winters. And I pretended that I did. 
right? And um, I said, oh, they don't, you know, they're not interested in me as a page anymore, that kind of stuff. And so my mom knew, had a friend, my mom was working at KTEL Records and those were like these compilation, you know, albums and, and DVDs that they put out. And she, um, you know, dragged me on the subway from Queens and I had to be like the receptionist at, at KTEL Records um, <laughs> for a while. And um, I quit that and then I, I got a job as like a cruise line reservations agent, you know, I, like I just, I really didn't have a real focus. And it really wasn't until I was like, I think in my mid twenties where I got a job working on press junkets, I was a PA. So like when films open up the, um, I don't know how I got this, but uh, I was the PA in the room with like Al Pacino and like I mic'd them and I counted down the interviews and stuff. And I was like, oh, right. Like, I'm kind of friends with Al Pacino for a day. <laughs> so you would, wait, that's it. So that was it. So you kind of became the friend of the celebs you always wanted. Yeah, for a day, yeah. you know, for a day. Like we eat together. We, I said, this is your next interview. And then I was, I realized I, I was watching the camera guys and I was like, that's, all, you know, just to be around them. And like, I liked it better before the talent got there because I liked watching um, everyone put everything together. Like I was the kid and I was the Springsteen head as well. I never wanted to get like the mosh pit or the front row. I always got the tickets that like looked off so you could also see behind the stage. Cause oh. I wanted to know how all this stuff was going on. And my friends would be so pissed. They'd be like, these are the worst seats. And I'm like, no, cause now we're seeing Bruce and we're seeing what he's doing and now he's changing. And you know, and like, how does he even get there? So it just started this whole, um, this whole thing of like, wow, I wonder if I can be a, a, a production person, not even a creative person, but could I be a production person? Is that what got you to MTV eventually? Was that, yeah. the, was that the real break? Yeah, that was the real break. I, um, a woman named Robin Reinhardt, who's like a top talent producer now, she hired me. Um, she was looking for an assistant and I met with her and she said, Clearly, you're not an assistant type because I had no assistant skill set. Now, are you, are you late 20s at this point? I, yeah, I think it was about 26. Okay. okay. I think it was about 26, maybe, maybe 27. So it was a slow start off the blocks, but I got to MTV and she said, hey, we need a, someone in the studio, a talent coordinator for all of the VJs. Because, you know, those were the days where nice. VJs got like 100 segments a day. And then there were all these celebrities coming in. So, like, my job was to be like, welcome to MTV, sign with this release. Hey, um, Bill Bellamy, you need to get into your clothes. And, you know, I called a lot of cars and did a lot of faxing. Is this TRL era? Or is it, it, was right, it was right before TRL. We had, okay. hadn't expanded out to a lot of original program. We were really just like, it was right after remote control and we were really just double downing on VJ segments and then summer beach houses, which was super awesome. Like we yep. did the Malibu beach house and the Hampton beach house. And my whole job was- Wait, wait did you cross over with Michael Bloom? Because Michael Bloom was on the show and he talked about being involved Michael. in like spring break houses and all that. Yeah, Michael Bloom was my boss during those things. Like, oh my God, who, that's crazy. He's the one who took me to Malibu and said, uh, you know, hey, you're going to be the talent guy at the house. And it was crazy because we were all the way in Malibu, but then like a limo would come down and there would be like Michelle Pfeiffer and, you know, and you'd be like, this is awesome, right? Like, this is really awesome. <laughs> so that was that was my life, you know? And you, and spent, was, you, you spent what, like over a decade at MTV? Yeah. 
I spent 13 years there. I, I love the culture. I love the leadership team with Judy McGrath and Van Toffler and um, this woman, Lois Curran, who's the president. It was kind of like, take big risks and don't worry if you fail, just don't, don't fail too often. Um, so you were able to pitch things like Punked and the Osbournes and um, Tony DeSanto and Liz Gailey were able, and Adam DeVille were to pitch Laguna Beach. No one ever said like, no, unless it was really polarizing. They were like, go ahead, go, go shoot some stuff, you know? And it was that kind of like freedom to create and be creative that I never wanted to leave there until what, I did. What was your earliest memory of MTV partnering with like outside production companies? Cause I didn't really get it until I spoke with Bloom. Cause for years I've always heard people talking about, I was an in-house EP. We, we, had, we, had, yeah. we were in-house, we were in-house producers. I didn't really understand what that meant because there are still in-house quote unquote EPs at a lot of cable networks now, right? But yeah. they are usually just, they're usually like assigned to shows like current current execs and they yeah. work with production companies. It, like I didn't realize, like Michael was saying like, no, 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 we didn't partner no. with outside companies until later. By the way, I'll never forget the first time an agent called me. I right. was like, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> right? And right. the fact is the agent called me because they were pissed that I went and developed a show with a piece of their talent and didn't tell them. To be honest, I didn't know I was supposed to tell them. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was all like, I'm sitting in the green room one day and there's so-and-so and I go, oh, hey, Nas, or, you know, <laughs> hey, this one, like, do you ever think of doing a docu-series about your life and stuff like that? But we really were, and people like Michael Bloom and the incredible Greg Johnston, like we had a team of in-house EPs, but, you know, we weren't current executives. Like when I tell you how many times on I was, you know, on set until 6 a.m. problem solving or or getting Sharon Osbourne to let us back into the mansion or explaining to some label rep why like we almost blew up their biggest artist on Punked, you know, like it it, it was really, it was hands-on. And um, it, it, it's something that, you know, I, I know at, at NBCU, even though we don't have those titles, we all come from that kind of same thing. Like, you're not really a current executive. You better help figure out the show. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, step in like one when, when needed. But if not, we need to really figure this out. But it was really exciting at MTV because if you pitched a show, you were supposed to make it. Right. Like, there was no one to hand it off to. And when it didn't work out well, you couldn't say, you right. know, oh, this guy Jimmy Fox screwed it up. Or You anything. were expected to be a 360 producer. You were expected right. to... Pitch well, it, had, yeah. right? Yeah, and then, go, I, and, then, and then go execute it. Yeah, I had to develop it. I had to pitch it up. Then I had a team with someone, whether it was Greg Johnston or a guy like Bloom, to actually produce it because they were so skilled. Um, and then we had to go to a big offsite and stand up and say, "This is this is what I believe in," and it was uh, all but of the, that. But the timing cool. of this, like the timing, you were there. I mean, thirteen years. You really were there just as they're starting to make the pivot out of quote unquote classic MTV and. And yeah. and I, I and I associate remote control with classic MTV yeah, and, so and, and and the spring breaks and all that. And then you you were part of like ushering into that mo more modern era that we we now know of MTV, which was the launch of docu series and the Osbournes. I want to talk about Newlyweds in a second, but all these other shows you were a part of with Punked and and Meet the Barkers. What is the most MTV story you have from your experience there? Whether it was when you were a PA or you had risen up the the ladder. What, what is the most MTV story you have? Um, well, I remember 
I remember the first VMAs, like I got assigned to be the host and the host was Roseanne Barr. And she, you know, she had some, that she's spoken about this, some, you know, personalities and she had some, um, it, was a, it was a rough time for, for her. And so dealing with her was like, she was the biggest TV star because of Roseanne, but her whole team was kind of like staying away. And, you know, Roseanne's intense when she works. And I just remember having like a, a rough day with her at first, like she was giving me yes or no answers. And then literally during the live taping, it's me and Roseanne with JFK Jr. watching, um, literally on the side of Radio City Music Hall, watching, like, I forgot, now I can't remember who it was. It was like watching some phenomenal rock band. And I remember going and calling like from the house phone to my brother and going like, holy crap, I'm here with Roseanne, JFK Jr. Um, Springsteen was standing next to us. And I just remember going like, how does this happen? You know, yeah. that that was good. And then I remember like pushing 16 year old Britney Spears around a cruise ship because she had broken her leg. What? And getting her like little like Mountain Dews and stuff. And she was so sweet and so lovely and so nice. And um, we had done something, there was MTV did a cruise where it was like a spring break thing. And Brittany was, um, she came on to say hi to all the fans. And my job was like wheeling her around like on a cruise ship. You, for, you wheeled like, her out in a, in a wheelchair because she had broken her ankle. Yeah, she had broken something, her leg or something during some like some kind of rehearsal. And, and that, that, was, that, that was pretty awesome. And then like, I don't know, there's so many of those stories. Like I remember when Bloom and the whole entire Beach House team did the Clueless premiere party oh. where we shut down the PCH and which is like, who does that? Like you can't do that now unless there's a mudslide. And we just created this outdoor movie premiere on a beach and it was, uh, you know, you're sitting there and it's like you and Daisy Fuentes and, and Alicia Silverstone and that whole iconic cast and Amy Heckerling and like it just these were pretty awesome times like being at I was just talking to uh, we had a pitch from LL Cool J a few months ago and I remember it was me and him and Sandler and Daisy Fuentes at a Benihana in <laughs> in Waikiki because that's all like that's all Todd wanted to eat right and it was just like what and then our our um car ran out of gas and so me and Sandler and had to like flag down like a bus right and we used Daisy Fuentes to be like can you take us back to the hotel and like I don't know there's just fun you know that was the magic of MTV you were always around creative people so you were always free to have a creative conversation and I think a lot of magical things happen out of those conversations. I don't know if this uh credit brings back any memories but do you know what the first credit on your IMDb page is? Oh, I'm glad you don't. Cause it'd be kind of embarrassing if you did. Uh, uh, Carmen, a hip hopera. Oh, wait a minute. Starring... Really, no, 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 really... no, 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 no. It wouldn't be embarrassing because of the credit. It'd be embarrassing that you know your own credits. On oh. yeah. 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 I'm not, I'm not dissing Carmen, a hip hopera starring Beyonce and Mackay Pfeiffer. That wasn't, oh, my, that wasn't. I, my really, I remember having to pitch, you know, Beyonce was in a, was in Destiny's Child and they were just they had like bills, bill, bills, and all these songs. I remember being around her, and why, and I got to know her dad a lot, um, pretty well. And um, I, you know, we were looking for the lead of this hip opera, and they were coming up with all these like, you know, famous actresses. And I, I just kept thinking about Beyonce, right? Like, you know, and so I had to keep. I pitched her, and then I 
pitched her again. And every Robert Townsend flew to New York and in the MTV conference room um, on 23, he like auditioned Beyonce to be like a movie actress. And I was like, like, that access allowed me to do great things for great people and therefore myself. So like that, that one, I thought you were gonna say something like it was the um, Monster Island where I, where I cast Carmen Electra <laughs> to be found after she was taken off of a cruise ship by a giant insect and uh, Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys had a saver. That one is not so good. I mean, I don't know how I did not see Carmen because it has some of my favorite hip hop stars from, the late, the late 90s, like Wyclef Jean was like my thing. I loved Wyclef. And we had and, to Brown open it up. And we even, I, I mean, this is how, this is the freedom we got. Like little Bow Wow was in a jail sequence. Bow Wow, <laughs> DeBrat and Jermaine Dupri. And JD, yeah. yeah. They, we got them all, you know, all together. It was, it was super fun. Uh, before we, yeah, I forgot about that one. Before we get off MTV, I, I, we got to talk about Newlyweds because that's like the one that's like the one seminal show that has not been brought up. I haven't been brought up on this podcast for whatever reason. I enjoyed the hell out of Newlyweds. Newlyweds caught fire quickly. Yeah. It really it really was like kind of an overnight success and made Jessica Simpson Jessica Simpson. It wasn't her music career. It really was the show that yeah, that did it. It's selling the whole brand of who Jessica Simpson is, but looking back, if that same show is getting made today, with those same two people, does that show even survive the notes and edit process? Because it's not like a lot happened in every episode. Well, I think that, you know, when I came up with that show idea, it was, I wanted to do a, you know, and by the way, I had an idea, but the amazing Greg Johnston, Lois Kern, and so many great people at MTV helped actually make it. But I wanted to do like a Lucy and Desi kind of thing, right? Okay. Um, and they were these two pop stars that were like, you know, her career had waned a little bit and, you know, it, 98 Degrees wasn't in sync, it wasn't Backstreet Boys, but they still had a solid following. And I think that they were, we were all naive enough to make it. And I think nowadays people, especially the talent are more sophisticated. So no, I, I think that that show would have a, really hard time just making it through the talent and their representation. Like, I'll just never forget when Greg Johnston showed us, you know, is this chicken, you know, is this chicken or tuna? Like, I don't think today someone's publicist or manager or label would allow them to look like that. You know what I mean? So I, so, so I, I don't, you know. How much I, was she in on it though? How much was Jessica in, in on the character Jeff of it? Is that just who she was? I have to tell you, that's exactly who Jessica was. And that was the magic of it. And I, I wish I could say I was smart enough to know that. Again, I was around her. I knew Joe Simpson really well. I still do. Um, but their agenda was to make her, uh, you know, another Britney Spears. Like they wanted more music to sell. And all of this was just a really happy accident of Jessica just being incredibly comfortable being Jessica. And yeah. She's really funny and she's really daffy. And there are things that she would say that you'd be like, oh, you're joking. And she'd be like, no, really, Rod. You know, like one time she didn't want to come to set and I called Greg Johnston. I said, where's, did you buy a set? Where are you going? And he's like, no, we're all downstairs waiting. And I remember going, Jess, like we're shooting in your house. <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> you know, and she's like, I know, I just don't want to do it today and that kind of stuff. I, I just think that talent's more sophisticated and we were able to shoot longer and we were all naive just to go like, this is just really cool, let's put it on. So I think it would be harder today. Because the form 
because what, what you're saying is the form was still so new that yeah. they they weren't raised on reality TV, so they couldn't have the no. foresight to know how they would be perceived or how they may come off. Right? No, that's that's exactly right. I mean, we trusted each other. You know, we right. made a, an agreement with them. Like, look, what like we showed Jessica and Nick the the cuts, right? And we took some notes, but. No one knew. Like I remember when Ozzy Osbourne, we were on on Rodeo Drive one day, and all these little girls came running up to him, and he had a like a freak out on Rodeo, and his wife was in Sharon was in Chanel, and he we go running into Chanel because I'm like, what's going on with Ozzy? Like he seems to be like having an anxiety attack, and he's like, who are those little girls? And I go, how do they know me? I go, well, they watch the Osbournes, you know, and he was like. You're killing me, <laughs> like, like, you know, like. <laughs> well, who, who, whose idea was it to to do a a family doc about the Osbournes? How did that come to play? It was kind of a hybrid. Like I had seen them on an episode. I had the flu. I was home and I saw the an episode of Kelly and Jack doing an episode of MTV Cribs. Oh. And I, thought they, I thought they were really compelling. And then I asked Evan Prager, who's now a producer, but at the label rep, hey, can you set up a meeting for me and the family? I want to get to know them and see like what we can do with them. And then Sharon and I um, had lunch and she was talking about her family. And I was, you know, she had come by the house. So I went by the house and it was, it was like everything like that was on the show. Like I sat, I sat in a room for 20 minutes where the family members kept running in and out and not one person asked me who I was or why I was there until Ozzy a half hour later looked at me and said, who the fuck are you? Why the fuck are you in my house? And I, and I remember going back to my boss Lois and saying, I think we should just put cameras and follow them, you know? Yeah. And because you, so you could do that so then. We could, could do that then. You could right. do that. That that wouldn't be enough now. And the other thing about Ozzy, you have to really consider, because I don't remember what was the year that that show came out. Two thousand two. Oh, okay, two thousand two. Two thousand two. So two thousand two. Now keep in mind, two thousand two. Like Ozzy Osbourne wasn't even of my generation. Like he, like yeah. Black Sabbath. You know, or Black. That was his band, right? Black Sabbath. Yeah, Black Sabbath. Yeah. Like that's that Good. was not like you know nineties, even like late eighties, so much. Like that was like a very niche previous generation of what the current audience at MTV was watching MTV in, 2000, in 2002. So you didn't, the, the, the most famous person on that show wasn't even someone that the current MTV audience necessarily even like knew, right? Yeah. I could see how at the moment it wasn't necessarily a slam dunk internally at MTV, right? No, the initial pitch wasn't. And, but again, it, it you know, people like Van Toffler and Judy and Lois Curran and Brian Graydon were like, okay, let's go shoot something. And like Greg Johnson was like a huge Aussie fan. So, you know, I grew up on pop music. So you can only imagine like me working with the Prince of Darkness scared the crap out of me, right? Cause I just heard he, like, he bites birds. And right. I was like, wow, like, <laughs> this is, you know, do you have any Backstreet Boys in that? <laughs> right? No, but and, that's uh, right. It is the era of, it's the era of yeah. boy bands at that point. And, yeah. and Britney and, and that kind yeah. of stuff. But you know, th that's what I loved about working working there at that time there wasn't there were things like take a creative risk but make sure you have a foundation and when the foundation was like here's this big rock star family who lives this over-the-top life and they're bonkers but man don't come for one of them because they're all coming for you if you do you know and it, it just it reminded us all of our of the love that we have for our families 
but they seem to be a little more exaggerated than some of us. Not my family, but yep. a lot of people. So I think it was surprising to see the Prince of Darkness be a dad. All right, so because of your relationships at MTV, I'm gathering that's what sent you on your way to go work at Catalyst. Was it from yeah. a relationship built from punk specifically? Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was Ashton, you know, I, I met Ashton when he was, uh, you know, with 70 shows was just starting to like pop and, uh, good looking, funny kind of guy. I, I saw him at rock and jock bowling, which is a show that we used to, you know, I love, I miss rock and jock so much, man. Oh, I, so I, that, that was, that was the funnest gig ever. Cause you can I tell just, you my favorite rock and jock moment. It's yep, when Dan, Dan Cortez. Off. I'm still in contact with Dan. Really? Dan is one of the VJs. Okay. He's not supposed to be one of the best athletes, but he played sports, I think, at North Carolina or something. Totally did. He, he hits a home run in, in softball. And I think to this day, it's the only like non major league baseball player to ever hit a home run in rocket jock. And he, so, he like, he like no sold it. He like hit the home run and just trotted the bases as if he's been doing this his whole life. And I remember well, as a, as a kid thinking damn. Dan Cortez was a God for hitting a home run in, in, in rock and jock softball. I just thought he was so badass and he was so good looking and, you know, and like yeah. he was, he was one of the talent pool that like automatically went off and started doing scripted stuff. And it was, uh, oh, yeah. You know, it, it was super cool. But I met Ashton and, you know, my job was, I, I think at that point I was like vice president of talent development. So my job, Judy McGrath in 2000 sent me out to LA because Chris Rock had just done the Chris Rock show for HBO and Rock was always at MTV, whether he was hosting the VMAs and stuff. And so she, she said to me, you really like talent. Why don't you go and try and develop shows with all of these talents? So they don't go away. So Ashton was on on my hit list, and um, he and Jason Goldberg, um, you know, pitched me this prank show, and we all turned it into punk. And then when I left MTV, um, by the way, it was crazy because I left MTV and at the height of like I thought my success. And you know, the phone doesn't ring, right? And you're just sitting there, like I was, you know, getting paid, but no one was calling me and I spent a lot of times at Will Rogers beach and you know, wait, so what, what made you leave MTV then you're, you're there for 13 years. Did you just decide it was time you'd burnt out or what was it? No, to be honest, I did have a yearning to figure out like now that I was learning how to really make TV, like how do you make TV outside of MTV? Like, mm -hmm. what do you do when you deal with agents and what do you do? What's a package fee? Um, but there was a new regime that came in. You know, my boss had decided to segue out and a new regime came in and, you know, as happens, I got restructured out and, you know, I, I sat on the bench for like six months and um, talk about like a little bit of an ego blow. Like, you know, you used to have Mariah Carey singing you her Christmas song or a Debrat in your conference room perform for you. And there I was like, it was me and a bunch of seagulls, you know, at back on the beach in Santa Monica. And uh, one, and Ashton and I had a, you know, Punch was a tough show. Because you were always, you know, I was always apologizing to publicists and managers after the people got punked, right? Because mm -hmm. it was either embarrassing or they they thought it was really funny. Then the next day they were worried about it. So Ashton and I had some real, I think, tense moments together, right? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, so I, of all the people in the world that I was surprised would call me for a gig was him and Jason Goldberg. And, and, they, the, com and the company at that point, do they have any sort of like studio overall deal or network yeah. first look at that point? They had, 
we, we had one, they had one with CBS, which we still had um, while I was there. There was a okay. scripted component that Carrie Burke oversaw for right. Fox, uh, Fox 21. And then um, our, um, our alternative was at, was, you know, was at CBS. When Gen was there, Gen Maynard, and then um, after he left when Jen Bresnan was there, it continued. But so weird, I don't remember when I think back at Catalyst, I don't, I don't recall any CBS shows. Like I, I think of so many shows made it, for other places. I know it's true. We we you know they had done Beauty and the Geek, um, which was like such a great show. I was CW. There. I was a PA on that show. It was one of my first jobs. Oh, yeah. It was one of those shows where I got. In tr- I was still at MTV, and I and I remember getting the call going. You did punk with him. Why didn't you get Beauty and the Geek? You know, and I didn't even know Beauty and the Geek existed. I was like, what's Beauty and the Geek? Um, so I don't. You know, Ashton and Jason were just really cool, and I think there's something about when you make something really special together and it's really hard that I was so absolutely flattered by Jason and Ashton to call me and say, hey, will you come run our, you know, unscripted, unscripted division. But we did do a show for CBS and, I, and it was a hidden camera show. It was kind of like what Ellen does where there's someone in a control room, got the name of it, someone's in a control room and you, I find you on the street and I have to make you do these things. Oh yeah, like a puppet master type of deal. Yeah, it's a, t- a total yeah. puppet master kind of, kind of thing. Yeah, and then we did I, something for NBC and. Yeah. But I remember Catalyst like early in my career when I was at CA as an assistant when I was at NBC. Like Catalyst was selling a million things. Like we sold. Describe to me what it was like being in a room pitching with Ashton at his at the height of his Ashton powers with a hit show totally like Punked on the Air and Goldberg being like a master wheeler dealer. What was, what, what was it like going in a room? Well. First of all, you had to be prepared because because the, the pitch could go any way, right? Like were you? Were you oh yeah, I want to know about this. What was what was the convo coming into the rooms? What was the understanding of how something would be pitched? Was it Jason or Ashton taking the lead, or did they look to you to be like the explain the format guy in the in the yeah. room? We had Jason, as you said, a, a master wheeler dealer, and so he actually would would take the lead. Okay, I would fill in the creative, me or Carrie Burke or Colleen Hall. We would fill in the creative aspects of it, and Ashton would come in with the pure kind of like, "This is why the show makes sense." Yeah, let me give you the global, right? Yeah. And you know, and but halfway through the meeting, because Ashton was so creative. It suddenly took a, you know, it could take a turn. Oh, and you yeah. were like, oh, that's not on these pages here. I remember sitting in Nina Tassler's office. It was me and Carrie Burke, and we would be pressed up against each other, going like, I don't know where this is going. I'm not sure where this is going, you know? <laughs> and them just and them just going, We love it. And going like, great, let's throw out the whole treatment because yep. they just made a better show. And this is because Ashton is doing a million things and 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 full time on a sitcom and he can't be in every development meeting. So oh, he by that point, he was making movies. I mean, he right. was doing movie after movie after movie. And uh, so we, we would get him. Um, we would get him in between. The worst was was going to a pitch and not having him because people were like, wah, wah. You know, they were right. like, oh, we get you. You know, that was disappointing to a lot of people. And people weren't afraid to say it to your face as you were in the room. Like, where's the good looking been, movie? But that must have been a great kind of next step for you because for the first yeah. time in your career, you kind of learned what it was like to have to, you know, hunt to eat, so to speak. Yeah, by the way, that's exactly right. And I, you know, again, back to your earlier point of why um, calling producers is important is because, you know, we were those guys, you know, we were on those guys where like, 
things were over budget. I remember one shoot, like the stunt coordinator decided to actually try the stunt himself, which I didn't know was a no-no. He hits a light post, winds up in the ocean. And like, I'm on the phone with the network going like, I think we need $200,000 and I think the ambulance should come, you know? Um, but it was, it, it was, it was, it was super fun, but it was, I give you guys so, I give producers so much respect because the ability, you know, you think of everyone as just a EP when you see the show finished, but the amount of development and the amount of pitching that has to get done and then you have to make something is it, I remember going, there's just not enough time in seven days of a week and there never was. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, you guys must have been so freaking busy at that point. You guys must it, have been cranking. It was, and then and then the pressure was on to you know to develop, right? Because then Seacrest started coming with his company, and then right. this. We weren't the only like movie star company, you know, in town, and right. Uh, it it was the pressure was on, and it just it takes, and you know, Jimmy, right? You develop fifteen things, and you sell two, and you're like, you know, the averages aren't always with you, the even thing- with Aspen. Arthur Smith actually had one of the quotes from this podcast that has stuck with me the most where, and I I don't even think it was his quote. He was like quoting somebody else. I believe I could be wrong, but he said something like good shows often don't sell and great shows have only a chance of selling like that. Like, like just in terms of like how hard you have to be on your own slate. It's so true. And we were all, you know, you've got a team of agents that are calling you every Monday. CIA used to call us. What do you got? Yep. You know, it would be like Animal Planet's looking for this show. And you're like, well, I don't have that. And, and Alan Braun would say to us, you better get something in that space. It's really hot. And you'd be like, okay. You know? oh, so, Alan, no- so Alan Braun hasn't changed is what you're telling me. No, Alan Braun is absolutely <laughs> not. He still calls me and treats me that way. I'm like, dude, I don't, you're not my agent anymore. <laughs> you know, right, so I, I want to I get to where you are now, but we can't yeah. skip over OWN. So yeah. you, you get to OWN in 2010. Yes. And, and you're the SVP of programming and, and development. What, yes. what is own at this point? Because, you know, you're out now, so you can speak freely. I, I just recall the roller coaster of incoming and outgoing executives in the early days, in the first like three years of own. It felt like there were like three or four administrations at well, one point. I think by the time I had gotten there, 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 there was at least two prior ones, you know, right. um, and they had spent a lot of money and developed a lot of shows. And uh, when, I, when we got there, it was, um, I think there was only one show that was actually really produced. The rest were like sizzles and stuff. And we, and we were launching in seven months. Oh my so, gosh. Oh, so this is still pre-launch. Yeah, I, yeah, I was part of the launch team and it was, um, it, you know, it was everything. It was so interesting because it was, you know, what's the commercial load and what's the logo and what does Oprah want the network to be? And what does Discovery want the network to be? And where does it fit in the landscape of, of cable and, and stuff? So it, it was a, an amazing, it was a masterclass in so many things. Um, and it, you're right, it was, um, it, 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 it was a constant like trial and error of things to figure out Oprah felt more passionately about it being kind of a teaching network, right? And I don't mean mm-hmm. a teaching network like a schoolroom, but she felt like if there was a mission to the shows that people like her daytime show, that people would, you know, gravitate towards it because that's what she was known for. And mm-hmm. when we started doing some of that stuff, we realized that people like that in the afternoon as a segment, I'm not so sure that we're competing against in prime time. Right. 
um, with that kind of programming. So we had to be really, really nimble. And when we launched, we were a huge success. And then months into the launch, after the first quarter, suddenly we weren't. And that was a, uh, a really hard lesson when you are working for the most famous goddess in the entire universe. And people start saying, wow, you're failing. The power of Oprah doesn't translate. And so the pressure internally became um, not fun, you know? Did you, did you interview directly with her? Um, I didn't because Tom Freston and Christina Norman, who was the CEO, she was the president of MTV and I knew her. So she invited me to kind of come over, but I interviewed with her chief creative officer. And, um, and then when I got the job, you know, out of nowhere, Oprah just, you know, you knew when Oprah was there because there were dogs and there were a lot of security people and there were also beautiful flowers everywhere. And it was my first day and I was like, wow, this is super nice. And MTV, we got pizzas, right? You know, like that was as much as it was. And there was just this beautiful spread of food. And she just came into my office and, and she sat down. And she no said, way. Yeah. And I remember her coming in. I had the smallest office because I was the last executive hired. And like, she closed the door and my heart sank. Oh my gosh. I was like, what do you do? You know, like, what is she going to ask me? And, you know, um, I hadn't watched a lot of the Oprah Winfrey um, show because, you know, I worked. Right. Yeah, so right. I, I didn't know what, I didn't know I had a spirit to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, what, what, did so you, then, what did she say? She, so she, she shuts the door. She's Oprah Winfrey. And she's barefoot. Right. And she, she shut the door and she was awesome. She sat down she said, I checked you out. I'm so glad that you're here. And um, I, I've got a, this network needs to work, not because she wanted it to work for business reasons, because she felt a responsibility to people that watched her for all those years and that she was taking it very serious. And she wanted me to take it very serious too, because we had a really, really unique opportunity. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was like, kind of like this serious fun talk, but like, you got it, right? Like, we need to really accomplish something with this network. When, when it's an, I mean, you work at a network, it's corporate, it's a gig, right? But yeah. when you work at a network like OWN, yeah, it where it is, it is developed, you know, in the image of one person, yeah. there's gotta be some Kool-Aid drinking that is necessary, right? From everybody there to buy in to the, the magic and the brand of that one person. But you can't help when you, you know, you can't help but buy into Oprah. I of mean, course. Right. like, you know, like you just, I say, I didn't watch the show, but I certainly know who she was. Right? right. And the power that she had and how she used that power. So you kind of bought into the responsibility that you, that you had to it. Right. Right. And, well, I'm saying that that's why I'm saying it's a totally different yeah. dynamic than working at any other cable network. Well, right. And what, what's interesting, it's totally different because like, you pitched her things, right? Right. And she would say, that may be good for another network, but that doesn't work for me because I'm Oprah and the association with that may not be what I want. So um, that was different for me because I, you know, you program a network, right? And here you were programming to Oprah and we used to call it Oprah Ness. How would the show have Oprah Ness, right? Could you see it on the Oprah Winfrey show or did it stand up to the standard that Oprah had? Um, and that, you know, that was really challenging. That was, it, it was, it was really challenging. And um, we made some really good shows and then we made shows that, are, you know, 
um, that were super well done and executed, but people weren't coming to prime time to actually see that. Mm. that show. Again, we had successes, Oprah behind the scenes. And um, there was a handful of things that really rose That behind up. the scenes show, I'm glad you brought that up because I remember watching that doc series where she was on camera and following her. Was it was it following the last year of her doing the daytime yeah, show? Yeah, the last season. And I remember watching it thinking, oh, this, this isn't like extremely flattering. Like I remember she was willing to show she moments was. where she came off difficult. By the way, and and that is, you know, that's what she wanted. She wanted to see everyone to see the grit and the passion, but also the challenges that went into making that kind of a show every single day. I mean, that that, you know, they would get a a airplane to come in for John Travolta. Like, who has the budget for that? Like, you know, know? like, like, wow, okay. You know, they did, they did magical things. So we were able to cap, we were able to capture that. And we got nominated for an Emmy for becoming Chaz, you know, the first doc about um, someone transitioning with, um, you know, Chaz Bono. And, you know, I think we took a lot of great creative swings there that probably today would be big streaming hits. All right, so you you eventually take off from own you do you go straight to oxygen or was it a, was it an oxygen yeah. bravo combo or was it always oxygen? No, I went straight to oxygen. I actually yeah. was hoping that um, you know there was a, there was a potential job at Bravo and there was a job at oxygen. So I met with Lauren Zelaznik, who um, yeah. I just knew by name because she was at VH1 and I was at MTV, and um, she she called me or she had someone to reach out to say, hey, you know, we're looking for somebody in, you know, her side of the, the business at that time. Bonnie had a, Bonnie Hammer had a different side. And I met with her and then she had me meet with Jason Klarman, who was the president. And then I met with Francis Barrick, who was the president of Bravo and Amy Intracasso Davis. And we kind of just, um, they were just looking for someone. And then Oxygen had the real need. Um, Amy Intracasso Davis was, was moving on. Um, and so there was a real need. So I went to Oxygen. Now, it was what, three years ago that Oxygen rebrands as a true crime network? Four years ago. Four years ago. Take me in the conversation of when this is first brought up. Like who who sure. from inside corporate says, hey guys, we should start thinking of pivoting and rebranding this network that has pretty much been like, I once said, this is not my words, but someone explained it to me. Oxygen was like the younger, drunker, uh, poorer Ooh. sister to Bravo. Right, it, right. Like that was how someone explained to me how to think what I, I pitch, what I pitch. Auction. Is that fair? By the way, I, 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 I <laughs> I've never heard it described as that, but I think there are elements of, of that. <laughs> but like it was, you know, and you, and you had, um, yeah, and you have snapped, right? Which is yeah. like a long running show at that point, and, oh. and a lot of other auctions. Snapped was the was the was the distant cousin you put on Sunday night and didn't do right. too much talking about it. It didn't connect with the rest of the slate. It was kind of- No, when, that, when I got there, that was the issue, right? We had right. one night was multicultural women because of Bad Girls Club. Another night were things like the Glee Project, which right. were 18 to 34, mostly Caucasian women. And then there was this audience on Sunday night, which were like 60 year old true crime fans. Right. So it, it had, um, it had really great ratings. It just didn't have an opportunity to kind of really mobilize on its strength and make it really important to advertisers and even inside of the, the company. Like, what right. was it going to be? So it, you know, it went through a couple of, of rebrands, and we were not doing well, quite frankly. I think everyone will admit that. And 
Francis Barrick is an amazing leader because we would all sit down once a year to go over planning, like what's, what are we gonna do for, what is Bravo gonna do? And then it was oxygen. It was like, you know, where oxygen success was, was not the North Star for, for where it wanted to be. And so it was in one of those meetings where Francis said, we have to t- have a serious talk about oxygen because, mm. you know, oxygen's in a vulnerable spot. So we all had to come prepared with ideas, like what could we do with oxygen? And most of that team that I was on at that time, I was the only oxygen person left after Francis took over, senior executive. And so I knew oxygen. And so when people were pitching things like, it could be like a Bravo without the drunk part, um, but younger, it could be like this. The only thing that was consistent on that schedule for me in the, in the three years at that point was hundreds of thousands of people showed up on Sunday night for Snap. Yeah. And, and you have to be, and you have to be looking across, across the, uh, the town at that point, seeing the success yeah. ideas like, having, with, right? With yeah. a 70% female audience and their rate, they're making shows that don't cost anything, right. uh, these recree formats, and they're just like top 10 every night. All the time. Yeah. Like every night they're, they're getting 300,000, 400,000 people in that. And without trying, we were getting great numbers with Snapped, right? And just not talking about it because it was true crime and advertisers may not have responded to it. And as luck would have it, Dave Kaplan, who's our head of research, he had a slide that Oxygen could either have been a true med or a true crime network. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of all seemed to be a group of people who kind of felt like simpatico around the opportunity. But you've been been enough of those rooms to know how many bad ideas can out of nowhere gain traction with like- the groupthink process. And yeah. I'm shocked that coming out of that somewhere, a bad idea didn't formulate that oxygen should change its name because what, is, what does oxygen have to even do with true crime as, as a name, right? And you guys own Sleuth channel, right? I'm surprised like someone didn't pitch the bad idea of just, why don't we just call oxygen Sleuth moving forward because that's connected to crime and detective work. Like was, was, a, was a name change ever brought up? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, okay. like- and friends of mine would call me and be like, oxygen, you're going to need it, right? As the <laughs> right? And so like, you know, there were all of those kind of things. Like, how could you call a crime network oxygen, you know? So we, we actually, we discussed it. There was a lot of MVPD there, you know, we, we had deals in place. We were, we had an affinity with this true crime audience. We had positions on cable networks to complete on, um, right. on, BPD listings to completely change something seemed to be another Herculean effort yep. in addition to rebranding everything yeah. from true crime. And, you know, again, we still had bad girls on, right? And right. so we had um, millions of young women going like, where's my bad girls? You know, like, right. what's this crime stuff? So it just seemed like, let's stay the course with the name and just um, play into the subject matter that we were producing. And it, it still worked. Like the viewers never cared. It was a bunch of other creative people right. sitting in the room going, oxygen, that sounds weird, right? <laughs> the viewers were like, I don't care. Where's my crime? All right. So now as we sit here in 2021, we're recording this early in March. Not sure yeah. when this will come out, but you know, little Rod Asa from New York, the CBS yeah. page is now the EVP of unscripted content at NBC Universal. Give the people what they want, Rod. Explain to me 
what the hell the structure is right now in the sure. in the way in the wake of some of the corporate restructuring. How you and Jenny work alongside each other. How it works with people on the West Coast and the East Coast. G- give me give me the, the the spiel that you've had to explain to people over and over again since the news broke. So um, what what this started out being, and and I think that this came from you know Mark Lazarus and Jeff Shell and you know all these great people that why why are we you know, why aren't we one-stop shopping for people? Like if, if an idea is good, why can't we find a place in this whole ecosystem? Seven, you know, six cable networks, a broadcast network and a streaming service. Like, shouldn't it just be like Jimmy Fox comes in with a good idea and we find a home for it? Um, so it started there. And so when Susan Robner came in, she wanted to make sure that she was mirroring that into her philosophy. And she wanted a team that actually worked that way so that creative people and producers actually knew where to go. And it didn't matter whether, hey, I got a Bravo idea. Like, you know how many times it's like, I don't know if this is a Bravo idea. I can make it an E idea. And like, how about we just start with the idea? So the way it's structured now, and I, I, to be honest, like this is, this is the job. Like, I, I can't believe how much I love this job, given that, you know, like we talked about earlier, it's not like I'm at a craft services table anymore. I don't have a stopwatch, which was what we used back in the day. I don't have a clipboard. Um, is that the unscripted area I head up, Rachel Smith is the head of development and unscripted in our area is docu-series, documentaries and light, and light formats, not big formats like The Bachelor. Um, and that Jenny Groom's team would do, as well as like game shows and competition elimination format. So if you've got a big idea for a format, um, an amazing race kind of show, or you've got a great shiny floor show, or you've got a great competition elimination show, it's very clear you go to Jenny Groom's team. Um, but if you got a docu-series or a format like Botched um, or a documentary um, or a true crime thing, uh, show you come to my you come to my group. So Rachel Smith is the head of that group, and she has it divided into Corey Abraham oversees development for true crime and documentaries, and then Jenna Rosa does formats and and docu series. And Got so it. these are all people that have been in this business for quite a bit of time. So producers and agents know them. So it's been kind of very clean so far on my, on my side of the house. And what I love about working for Susan Robner is, it's like these lines aren't as defined as that. Like we could be sitting in a meeting and I talk about Jenny's projects. Jenny talks about my project. We also talk about Lisa Katz, the president of Scripted, like her projects and mm-hmm. Katie Hockmeyer, her late night stuff, what's, what's going on. So it is really this kind of creative think tank about what should, we should be doing. But we do wanna make sure that it's clear to you guys and agents who to call about, about what, and if not, and I still get calls. Like I got a competition show with two music artists and you just go like, you add Jenny to the email. Hey, Jenny, this sounds like a great idea. It's for you. So for do you us- and Je- Do you and Jenny have regular meetings or do your two teams a- have like a monthly or something? Yeah, where- okay. we do. We have a monthly where we just know what we're doing and still there's still some leftover like competition show that Rachel Smith was doing for either consideration for Bravo or E. Right. Um, that, you know, we talked to Jenny about like, hey, we're still gonna keep doing this. Like we're still making on my side of the house, Project Runway and um, Top Chef. Um, so, but we talked to Jenny, like if there's an offshoot, like Top, Top Chef Kids, Jenny will make it. So it's really super collaborative. It's really fun. It's like, the one thing about MTV, as much as I loved it, 
it was set up to have competing development units. So your friends that you grew up with suddenly became kind of your competition. And yeah. suddenly you were no longer like hanging out and drinking and partying. You were kind of being competitive. Here we kind of just were constantly talking. Like I talked to Jenny almost every day. It, yeah, and it doesn't seem like it's been built to have any competitiveness among among no. your executives in the, in the various departments. It doesn't seem like you've got these separate teams. It seems like you've got a team that is specific to a genre. So yeah. they're really, it's not like they're really competing with any of the other in-house teams. No, they're not. They're competing against themselves right. in order to make sure, you know, it, it's hard, you know, it, it's very competitive. On the documentary space, Jimmy, it is really, like you get a yeah. pitch and an hour later, the agent calls you and says, we have three offers, <laughs> Right. you right. know? And you're like, how did that happen? I haven't even typed <laughs> notes on this. Do you know what I mean? Do you, so, are you kind of happy now that you're in the big chair um, alongside Jenny? Do you, are you kind of happy that there aren't traditional upfronts? So you don't have to go be that person making a speech uh, in Radio City Music Hall? Or, or, or do you kind of wish you had that opportunity? Well, no, I don't because I don't like public speaking. This okay, is yeah, I would hate that. I would, that would, I would dread that. I ever did because... I just like, I never want to hear this, right? Like, you know, because it's you and I, you know, it's corporate PR is like, well, why do you want to do this? And I go, Jimmy Fox, like, it'll be fine. You know what I mean? Like, so, but no, I, I that's not something that I, um, like when I used to do TCA speeches and present yeah. on Slate, you know, you're sitting in a room with 200 reporters and sometimes only 30 reporters, depending like who was in front of you in the room. And it's really intimidating. <laughs> like you get, I, I, for one, just get really stressed out about it. You've got 20 people. You've got to say it this way. you got to do it that way. So I won't speak for Jenny, but for me, yeah, from that respect, what I, what I do miss about that stuff is like, it was a big, loud bang of what you were doing. And I've always been so proud. Like when we rebranded Oxygen as a crime network, like that was big, right? Yeah. That was like Oxygen third rebrand and like, you know, style had, you know, was about to go away, uh, did go away and Esquire was on the bubble and so were we. And like, you just felt such a like pride that like a team of people um, got together and, and did that. So like, I miss that and people coming over going like, wow, like seriously, we weren't buying oxygen for, now we're gonna consider buying oxygen. So those moments yeah. you miss, but the public speaking part is something that I would prefer never to do. Well, this isn't public speaking, but I appreciate you signing up to do this because I know you told me you never you've never done one of these podcasts before, right? Because I'm too nervous. I, I just I don't want you know. I listen when you get new jobs and and, and people posted in deadline, you learn not to look at the comments. <laughs> it's just like you that's, know, yeah, smart move. That's a smart. smart that's move. a smart. That's a smart smart move. By the no, way, I, thank you, thank you for doing this, dude. But also thank you for being a really excellent partner to us. Well, thanks, man, and I, I appreciate it. And you guys, you guys have a great culture over there. You really do. I mean, I mean, I, I know because like I talked to everybody everywhere and, and maybe I'm a little biased because I came up, you know, a, as an assistant at NBC, but you guys really have maintained a great corporate culture. Yeah, you make just sure, the people. You make shows everywhere, Jimmy. It, it, it's kind of like, you know, you call me and let me know when you think we're missing the mark because like you're that kind of producer, you know. No, you don't want that call. You don't want I that do. call. By the way, if it makes us better, you know, listen, a few years ago, we were on the bottom of that impact list for oxygen, you know, because in mm. fairness, like we were all over the place. And Corey Abraham and I said, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, let's start talking to people and figuring out why we're mm. doing it. We turned it around. So it's okay, as long as we can turn it around.
Awesome, man. Well, look, thanks for doing this. Thank I you. appreciate you doing this in the middle. It's like we're doing this in the middle of like a regular Wednesday work day right now. So thanks for fitting me in. Thank you so much, my friend. I'll see you soon. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. Bye.